have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to open up with me to Mark chapter number 8. Mark chapter number 8. Some of you may know this about me, others of you wouldn't, but I, I love to write. And as much as I look forward to preaching um, the sermon every Sunday morning to you out of the Word of God, uh, I, I spend much time throughout the week writing out this message because it's very easy for me to, it's, it's much easier for me to think through the, the sermon and ask God to speak with me as I write and then just simply share uh, with you. For nearly 15 years, when I was served as a youth pastor and, and a leader in, in a church in Indiana, I would, would produce a, a small little weekly newsletter for our teenagers. It would usually have a schedule of a, uh, a couple of comics, some bad jokes. I, I, I know they've gotten good since I've been here. By the way, I haven't told you, you, you know what Mozart is doing today, right? Mozart, he's decomposing. Uh, no. And, and, by the way, there is a new movie coming out. Uh, a, it's going to be based on classical, classical music writers and composers. And of all things, when they were doing the casting, Arnold Schwarzenegger walked in to try to be a part of this movie about classical composers. And they said, Arnold, what, where are you here? He said, look, I'll be Bach. I'll be Bach. All right, well, I mean, I, I wasn't saying they've gotten any better. I'm sorry about that. But, but uh, typically, along with some bad jokes and a comic, I would uh, try to uh, just give a short little event that happened during the week and, and apply a spiritual truth to it to the teenagers from the Word of God. And I, I remember uh, one time Trevor was two or three years old, and, and in our garage uh, we had a treadmill, and he was walking on the treadmill, and his brother, Troy, our oldest son, uh, really wanted to help Trevor in his, uh, in his athletic endeavors. And so he decided to move the speed dial from 2 to 10. And uh, I, was in the, I was in the garage at some point, but all I know is at some point Trevor hit the mat, and the mat kept going. And so he got a burn on his face, and then he got thrown off the mat to the back, and he started crying, you know, two-year-olds. Uh, he was crying. I picked him up and held him for a little bit, and then I, I put him back on the treadmill, and I held his hand. He didn't want to get back on, so I said, man, we, we have to. And, and so we eventually started, you know, working it up until he was able to walk again without holding my hand, because I, I don't want him afraid of it. And I, I just used that to, to remind the students that, you know, in the book of Proverbs, we're told that a just or a righteous man will fall seven times, but, but he always rises up again. And, and it's, not, it's not the fact that you've fallen that can ruin your life. It's, it's your reaction, a wrong reaction to the falling. When we sit in our sin, rather than get up to continue to follow Christ— once I took our, our teenagers to, uh, to the Indianapolis Colts training camp. It was really cool. It was the, it was the summer after they won the Super Bowl. And, uh, and I remember watching Peyton Manning out on the field. And I came back and I wrote to the students. I said, man, I loved watching Peyton Manning because he was the best athlete out on the field. But every time the coach talked to him, he would stop what he was doing and he would look at the coach. And I said, you know, it reminded me of two, two thoughts in the book of Proverbs that, that aren't put together, but they're, they're very similar. One, one is if you give instruction to a wise man, he will be yet wiser. But a fool despises wisdom and instruction. And so I, I just, just remembered that I wrote down to them. It's, it's receiving instruction doesn't make you wise. Receiving instructions reveals if you already are wise. Because you're you want more wisdom. And, and just continuously, I, I would love to write. And, and yet, as, as I was preparing for this, 
knowing what we're talking about, Christian education, and you think of teachers, and, and Jesus is the greatest teacher, the, the greatest rabbi to, to ever walk. Jesus, to my knowledge, never wrote anything except one time he, he knelt down and he wrote in the but we don't, we don't have anything. Jesus taught through his words, whether it, was, whether it was teaching multitudes on a hillside or whether it was teaching small groups through parables or whether it was even, as we find in John 4, where he sits down with just one person and he just shares truth. That's how Jesus would teach. And today I want to take you to a, a lesson that Jesus teaches, but he doesn't just do it through his words. He actually does it through his actions in, in a strange way. Miracle, And we, we find that in Mark chapter number 8. Now, in Mark chapter 8, I, I, I want to just give you a little bit of a background of, of what the gospel of Mark really is. The gospel of Mark, the author, he was actually the scribe. He, he was somebody who worked together and very closely with the apostle Peter. So much of what Mark would, would write down, the human source would be the Apostle Peter, who spent a great deal of time with Jesus Christ and himself. And, and so as the Holy Spirit would lead Mark to write, Mark was not writing to give us a chronological lifespan of Jesus. Mark would write, he was writing to the Roman Christians, the same Roman Christians that Paul would write the book of Romans to. Mark was writing to the Roman Christians, and Mark would take the parables of Jesus and he would group them together. He would take some of the miracles of Jesus and group them together, not necessarily trying to give us again chronologically, but he would purposely be grouping things together as the Holy Spirit would lead him. And if you, oh, if you look at Mark chapter 8, we're, gonna, we're just going to briefly zip through real quick until we get to the passage that I want to share with you. It opens in verse number 1 with, with the feeding of the 4,000. Now in Mark 6, two chapters earlier, Jesus had fed 5,000. But the disciples now are like, hey, there's a lot of people here. How are we ever going to feed them? And Jesus is, did you, not, did you not see what I've done once before? How'd you miss that? And then, and then down in verse number 11, Jesus is approached by a group of Pharisees who want a sign from heaven that he is the Messiah. Now, Jesus has already healed multitudes. He's cast out demons. He's raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He, is, he has walked on the water and he's fed the multitudes twice. And they're saying, could you show us a sign from heaven that you are? Did you miss what was right in front of you? And then in verse number 14, the disciples, they have this conversation when Jesus warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And leaven, of course, I, I know most of you would know this, but just give me a brief moment in case someone doesn't. Leaven is something that would be added to, to dough in order to allow the process of fermentation to take place throughout the bread and it would rise. That's why when we have the Lord's Supper, we, we eat unfermented bread or, or bread without leaven, unleavened bread, and it's flat. And so Jesus is saying, be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And, and in the disciples' mind, they're thinking Jesus is talking about bread. And he's like, do you not yet understand? I'm not talking about, the, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the teaching, the, the belief, the lifestyle that is going to affect everything that you are. And the, the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod was that they were not living for the kingdom of God. They were living for the kingdom of self. And it was a self-preservation. 
a self-acclimation type of a lifestyle that would affect every part of their life. And Jesus was warning, don't live like that. They didn't get it. And in verse number 18, Jesus is going to ask them a strange question. And this is not where we're going yet. But in the midst of this little conversation, 11, he says, having eyes, do you not see? Well, what do you call someone who has eyes and can't see? Blind. Having ears and you can't hear, you're deaf. Do you, do you not remember? Have you forgotten? And so Jesus is talking to a group of men, and he's, Mark has given us, missed it about the multitudes, missed it about the sign from heaven, missed it about the leaven, and now he's going to lead us to an incredible miracle in verse 22. Mark 8, verse 22 says this, And they came to Bethsaida, some people brought to him a blind man. Interesting. He just asked, do you have eyes that you can't see? And now a blind man is being introduced here. By him a blind man. He took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. Now, this is one of the stranger miracles of Jesus. He leads this blind man away from people. He touches him, and then he asks him a question. And he touches him again, and the sight is fully restored. And, and, and if we're not careful, we could take this miracle, rip it out of the context of Mark chapter 8, and come up with all kinds of really good practical applications. And you know what? As a preacher, man, it is so easy to do sometimes. Like, like we, could, we could talk about how um, Jesus never works the same way twice. Or maybe the application is don't walk away, without, with, uh, don't walk away from Jesus without letting him finish what he started. Or, or, or even, y'all need a second touch from Jesus. And none of those applications would, would be wrong, but I, I just wonder if in the context of Mark chapter 8, if that's what was meant to be intended here. But I think the answer is given if we just keep reading. Because look at verse number 27. And Jesus went on his way with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, people say that I am. So I'm going to pause right there. You understand what's happening? Jesus is taking men. He has just asked, do you have eyes but you can't see? Jesus is taking blind men outside of the city. Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi is, is a good day's journey from where they were. And now he's going to ask a question about what they see right in front of him. Who do people say that I am? And their answer was, well, well, they told him John the Baptist, say Elijah and others, one of the prophets, verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, well, you are the Christ. And, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Do you see these parallels in this miracle, this two-stage miracle? Jesus heals this blind man. And now he's having this conversation with his blind disciples. He asks them, well, do you see who I am? And Jesus says, well, you're the Christ. And he says, don't tell anyone. Now, Christ is not a title. His name was not Jesus Christ. But like, my name is Brian Hassey. 
Christ is a title, it's not a name. It means anointed one. And when Peter makes this declaration, you are the Christ, you have to understand biblically what just took place. Up until Peter's words right here in Mark chapter number 8, the only people who have declared Jesus, the only beings who have declared Jesus as the Christ are the angels who announced his birth. Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, and demons who have responded and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, quiet. This is the first time a man, humanity, has now said, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. We know you are the Messiah. And get this, in Matthew's gospel, it's not here in Mark, but in Matthew's gospel, do you know what Jesus' response is? Flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you. My Father has revealed. My Father has touched. My Father has allowed you to see who I am. The working of God in the sight of who Jesus is. And yet, let's keep reading. Because as soon as they say, we see you clearly, Jesus asks them kind of the same thing. What do you see that I am? And we're going to... We're going to see that they don't have a clear picture yet. Verse 31. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Now I'm going to stop there. I know that's not the end of verse 32, but I'm going to pause there for just a moment. So Jesus takes these men who, who, who he's asked, Are you blind? And they say, Well, no, we see you clearly. You're the anointed one of God, and he begins to teach them what the anointed one of God is to do, that he will suffer, he will be rejected, and he will be killed. But, but I'll rise again, and this makes no sense. You see, the, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, was supposed to deliver the Jews from the enemies, from their enemies. It's why the disciples would fight over who gets to sit on his right hand, who gets to sit on his left hand, because he's going to be the king. Now that we have revealed he is the Messiah, ha, I want to be as close to him as we can. He's our deliverer. And yet Jesus is saying, I've come to suffer and to die. And they're just like, That's, that doesn't jive with what the Messiah is supposed to do. And so Peter, the only disciple willing to ask, we see the end of verse 32. He took Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Now you understand what's, what's got to be happening. These 12 disciples are like, ah, he's the anointed one. He is the Messiah. We know the truth. He's going to lead us to deliverance. And then he says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to die. And they're like, no, that can't be true because that doesn't work. And asking all kinds of questions. And Peter's like, Jesus, that, No. And then we see in verse 33, Jesus' response. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He calls Peter, this disciple, a Satan, the, the Satan, the deceiver of the brethren, the, the father of lies, the enemy of God. And in, in that moment, Peter really was standing in the will of the Father because the very purpose for the Messiah to come was to lay his life down as a way of defeating the greatest 
enemy that Peter had, that the disciples had, and even that you and I have, the enemy of sin. But Peter didn't get that. Why didn't Peter get that? Jesus already said. Because, Peter, you, like the Pharisees and like Herod, who have been living for the kingdom of self, and have, le have leaven inside of them that is affecting every action and every thought that they have. Peter, you are setting your affection, you're setting your mind on things of man, not on the things of God. And until you set your mind on the things of God, you will never see me clearly. You're like the blind man who had to have, who was given sight, but only to see men as trees. You have been given sight to see me as the Messiah, as the anointed one. But until you realize my purpose is not to provide your kingdom, but to bring his kingdom to pass, you will never see me clearly. And I don't know the, I don't know the origin of this statement. It's not mine, but it is so vital to the rest of the message the wrong view of messiahship leads to the wrong view of discipleship when jesus said i must lay my life down what was peter his disciples reaction no you can't do that the wrong view of discipleship because he had this wrong view of messiahship. And for the rest of the chapter, Mark 8 is so powerful. For the rest of the chapter, Jesus will go on and explain what it truly means to follow him. That their death, their death would be a necessity. As he says, you cannot follow me unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And he wasn't just talking about a physical death. All disciples, most of them would, would, would fall to a mark death he was talking about you would have to die to living for the kingdom of this world and you'll have to die to this kingdom each and every day and you have to live for the kingdom of god each and every day and look at how this two-stage miracle of jesus was teaching those disciples that even, you've got to kind of grasp this, even those who believe Jesus is Christ can still miss eternal life. Because Judas is there. And because the demons had already declared Jesus to be the Christ. They knew the truth, but they did not believe in Jesus for eternal life, and they would not bow to him as Lord. They would not give up their kingdom to live for his kingdom. And wouldn't you agree that there's many Christians that live that way today? God has allowed hearts to be opened and, and eyes to see and ears to hear that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the hope, the only hope. 
But there are many in this world who continue to look to themselves as their own Savior and as their own Lord of their life. See, the Apostle Paul would write to the same group of people. Remember I told you Mark wrote to the Romans? Paul's going to write to the same group of people. And he's, he's going to write to these people a verse that to us is more like it hangs on our wall or it's a coffee mug or it's on the back of a track. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. To us, I know to me, I've used this verse many times when witnessing to an unbeliever and simply, here's, here's my understanding. So if you say out loud, Jesus is Lord and believe it in your heart and you'll be saved. And we totally, we totally miss what Paul was intending to write originally to his readers in Rome. For them to confess out loud, Jesus is Lord, would very possibly mean death. For me to believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and then to speak it out loud to those around me means that I am declaring that Caesar is not Lord. Oh, you don't say that. The Herod is not Lord. That Rome is not Lord and that I will not bow a knee to the earthly kingdom rulers. My Lord is Jesus. Okay, now, how do you think we take that? Well, we have all kinds of spiritual and religious freedom, right? It may get harder, but right now we have the religious freedom to do that. In Rome, when Paul wrote to these people, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's saying, take your life and let it go. And leave it in the hands of God. Man, and I'll be honest with you, I don't live like that. We don't really live like that. And I think in so many ways, the vision of God that we have is incomplete. I've heard this many times, just kind of whistling in different conversations, but you know, people have talked about how the, the government of our nation is changing right now and there's a there's a governmental um law passed called the equality act which would make it very difficult for us to live out our christian lives both in a church and in the christian school that we talked about today it would affect so many things right and people people are saying this i think the lord's coming back soon and i read i read this week somebody had posted a question so why do we think that because we as christians in america are finally facing persecution for following jesus that it must mean the lord is coming soon believers all over the world have been facing persecution for centuries but because it's coming home to us jesus must be coming the lord it must be soon it's getting dark when I think sometimes maybe we just, I know I don't, we just don't have as much of an understanding of how dark it is for a lot of people around the world because God has given us the ability and the opportunity to be light. And I, I'm really only, I hate to say this, halfway through my message, 
And so I'm just going to, like, land the plane, crash, crash land the plane, if you'll give me just about five or six minutes. What I, wanted, what I wanted to do is I wanted to take you through the ways that I feel, I know that in my own heart, when I pause to step back and see, how do I not see you clearly? How do we as your followers not see you clearly? We call Jesus our Lord. That, you know what that means, right? He's in control of everything. He's in control of your time. He's in control of your money. He's in control of your job. He's in control of your family. He's in control of everything. But I step back sometimes and I try to, I try to realize that I, I fixate myself at times on the wrong things about God. And here's, here's just, just let, me, let me briefly run you through the last part. Those in Christ. And that is a clarifying statement because I don't want somebody in here who does not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I do not want you to think these promises simply apply to the world. These promises apply to those who are in Christ. To those in Christ, God is the giver. But he's also the gift. Right? Don't, don't, we, don't have a, we don't have a hesitation. We don't have a, a moment's hesitation about going to God who will supply all our need according to his riches and glory. God, I need, 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 need. He can provide everything. But listen, he's already provided the most important thing. Himself. And, and in these scriptures behind me, John 3, 16, where we see that God gave his only son. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that in Christ in his son when God gave us his son we have received every you have to understand that every 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 spiritual blessing you have already all you need to live the Christian life the surrendered life you have it all you don't have to ask him for one more thing you have received it in Christ he is the giver but he's also the Secondly, I'll tell you this. To those in Christ, God is my Lord. But he is also my father, my friend, and my intercessor. I think sometimes we have this, this idea that, that God as, as our Lord leaves us in debt to God and we have to do everything in order to pay back that debt and we're obligated to serve God as our, our master. And when we serve God as our master, everything, our relationship is measured by how much we do and how much we accomplish or how much we don't accomplish. And it's all based on behavior and actions. And that is not, that is not, that is not your relationship with God. And a boss, an employee, a lord, they find your worth on what you're able to do for them. Ha, no. Our worth is not in what we're doing for him. No, no, no. Our worth is in what he has already done for us. And he is my lord. But he is also my father. He is my friend. He is my intercessor. Every one of these verses is clearly the relationship that God desires with his people. Next, to those in Christ, God is sovereign. 
but he is also present in suffering. Psalm 23, I, I know it's so familiar to us all, but I use it when I go visit somebody who has lost a loved one, and I often use it at a funeral because it is so beautiful. It reminds us that not only is God ahead of us, the Lord is my shepherd leading me. He is, now there's nothing I will, and there's nowhere I will go, nothing I will face that he isn't out in front of me. It also says that mercy and truth will follow. Or the, uh, just lost that. Is it mercy and truth? That's not right. Mercy and goodness. Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And that's, that's who Jesus is. He's, he's goodness and mercy. He's following me. So he's in front of me. He's with, but, but the beauty is when you go through those valleys of the shadow of death, he's not, he's not in front of you. He's not behind you, although he is. He's with you. And you have no need to fear. Not because of your circumstances, but because of his presence. To those in Christ, God is sovereign. Romans 8, 28 tells us he works all things together for good to those who love him james 1 reminds us that we are to count it joy when we fall into trials because god is working in those trials to complete and perfect us and finally and last to those in christ god is my judge but he is also my justification you know we'll all stand before god one day and interestingly enough 80 percent of americans who believe in god so i'm not talking about atheists or agnostics. 80% of Americans who believe in God believe that one day we will stand before God to be judged for our actions. But if you talk to most of those people who believe that they'll stand before God one day to be judged for their actions, and you say, ah, now, if God were to meet you at the gates of heaven and say, why should I let you in? What would you answer? And the answer for the majority of people is, I tried to be a good person. I have tried to live a good life. I have done everything I could to be, do more good than bad. And so I hope that when I stand before God, he looks and says, all right, you've been good enough. Hey, the good news is that he is your judge, but he is also your justification. Because Ephesians chapter two tells us we haven't been saved, whether we've been saved by faith, we haven't been saved by works. And Titus chapter 3 tells us that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Now Romans 11 says if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works, but then grace wouldn't be grace. And Romans chapter 5 says that Jesus died for the ungodly while we were sinners. Christ died for us. We have to step back and get this complete, full picture of who God is. Yes, he is the judge that you will meet at the end of your life, but he is also the one who has provided justification. For when you stand before the judge, you can stand and say, I am perfect and complete because I have placed my faith and belief in what Jesus did for me, not in what I have done for you. And that is such good news so i'm going to guess that there's some few people here today and you believe jesus christ you believe jesus is the christ but you you still think eternal life's up to you and i just want to encourage you and we we have to see the full picture the full picture of who god is 
giver, but he's the gift. He's my Lord, but he's my Father. He is one who loves me by judging me, but providing the way for me to be completely guiltless before him because of the work of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, as we approach, and we're getting closer and closer to the, to the time where we here in the world pause to remember the death and even the burial and then the celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus. Father, I, I don't want to miss, like these disciples, there's just, I relate with them so much. Like, I'd be Peter saying, God, this doesn't make sense because I do that today. It doesn't make sense sometimes, God. And what you're doing can't be right. And then when I step back to see, God, for who you truly are, oh, you are the holy God that created this world. You are the one who sustains me with life. And Lord, even when I live for myself and I allow self-preservation and self-acclamation to be more important than surrender and sacrifice. You continue to pursue me in your love. Father, I pray that we as a church would have this understanding of truly who you are. Who we are in response or relation to you, but God, how you responded to us in love. Father, I pray if there's anybody here today and they know Jesus, just, just like those disciples claimed to know Jesus was the Christ, that they, but they didn't understand why he had come. Jesus didn't come just to judge the world. He came so that the world through him might be saved. Father, I pray that you might open eyes and that you might allow ears to hear and allow understanding to be gained by those who are sitting here, not because of my words at all, but because of your Holy Spirit doing the work. Church, if you're sitting here with your heads bowed, and as you sit here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're sitting there saying, you know what, I, I, I've always thought you, you get to heaven by being a good person. Well, you do get to heaven by being a perfect person. But none of us get to do that, can do that. But we can be given, we can be gifted the righteousness of Christ. He will take all of our sin and remove it all if we simply believe. Not just believe he is the Christ, but believe he is the Christ who came as the sacrifice for the sins of the world and the redemption of mankind and offering his righteousness in place of ours. If you're sitting here today and you say, man, I, I don't know if I've ever had that correct picture of Christ. It's, it's as simple as understanding that I know I'm a sinner. I know in my sin, I deserve the judgment of death and hell. But that I, I get this. Jesus died not to help me get to heaven, at, but to provide the only way through him. He offers the forgiveness of my sins and his perfect record on my account if I would just simply believe. I wonder if there's anyone here today and you say, hey, Pastor, would you, would you pray for me? Like, I don't know if I have this 
completely correct view of Jesus, and maybe I don't even still get it right now, but, but you've given me some things to think about. Now, would you just pray for me as I think through this more clearly about who Jesus is? If that's you, I would love to honestly just, just pray for you. Would you slip a hand up and say, hey, pray for me, Pastor. I'm, I'm thinking through that. I'm thinking through that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anybody else? Hey, Pastor, I'm just, I'm just thinking through that. Would you pray for me? How wonderful. Thank you so much for raising your hands. And let me just ask you this. The rest of you, your heads bowed and eyes closed. I, I just wonder, are, do you have the full picture of the Christ that you serve? Is he your Lord? Is he your Father? See the givers. You just look for the gifts. Do you realize he is the gift? He is the judge, but man, he is our justification. Would you sit there and would you thank Jesus for who he truly is? Praise him for not just bringing condemnation for our sin, but bringing salvation from our sin.